Our first reading for today is Judges chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sapphir. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sapphir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my, uh, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have sent me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Our second reading for today is Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I missed you guys last week. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I was at um, Michigan, um, not Hawaii, unfortunately, uh, for Alex's uh, ordination. Uh, I was hoping it would be in Hawaii, but um, I did go to church three times. I, I love going to church. Um, I really do. So I had a chance to visit some different churches and, and worship with different communities. Uh, but glad to be with you all uh, back here. Um, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day uh, that you have made. We thank you, God, for you are... You are the everlasting Father. You are our Redeemer. And we ask now, um, in our time together, as we hear your word, you would uh, help us to understand, to believe, and to apply it in our lives, that uh, our lives may shine your light, uh, shine your glory uh, in this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a pretty incredible story. It takes place in a time of chaos when different political factions are trying to raise armies and battle to unify different warring kingdoms. It's full of interesting characters, like a left-handed assassin who's adept with a specially made dagger, a military leader who shockingly sacrifices his own daughter to fulfill an oath, a long-haired, bearded man with supernatural Herculean strength, a prophetess 
unexpectedly leading an army to victory. A seasoned but unsuspecting general defeated by a woman yielding an unusual weapon. There are many battles, including a brief description of one against giants, as well as a long, massive, epic battle against all odds in the dark of night. It's filled with political intrigue and shifting military alliances, family and generational struggles for power, terrorism, questions of political morality, murder, rape, bodily mutilations, and other unspeakable acts of violence against women that will make your stomach turn. It's not Game of Thrones. It's the book of Judges. We begin a new series of sermons today on the book of Judges. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but I can tell you that as a child, I grew up hearing about the adventures of Samson and Gideon in Sunday school. And that was, that was about it. I checked with Pastor Danny and Pastor Dohi, and they tell me that they have not shared much, if anything, from the book of Judges with their students. This is not surprising. The stories in Judges come after the stories of the Exodus with Moses, after the initial conquest of the Promised Land under Joshua, and before the establishment of the unified kingdom under King David. So it's a time of chaos, of tribal leaders, and of uncertain futures, filled with so much violence, especially against women, and parts of it labeled famously texts of terror by Phyllis Shribble, it's hard to see where the good news of the gospel is in the book of Judges. It is not a popular book in the Christian church. In the Revised Common Lectionary, for example, which is supposed to cover the whole Bible over a three-year period so that we might hear the whole counsel of God, only one reading from the book of Judges, Judges 4, the story of Deborah, is read is assigned once every three years. So if a church strictly followed the Revised Common Lectionary, you would never once hear about Jephthah or Othniel, which you might say, so that's okay. But you'd also never hear about Gideon or Samson, right? Samson's someone that even people who are unfamiliar with the Bible, they've heard about Samson. In fact, the book of Judges has 12 judges, Six of them known as major judges, six known as minor judges because of the the length of their stories, and 12 because I think that it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, and I think their stories uh, have much to teach us. And so I want to spend the next couple of months uh, looking at this book and these judges because I do think they have a lot. Uh, to teach us. And so today we begin with the first of the named judges, uh, Othniel. As you heard, there are two brief stories involving him. In the first story, his uncle, Caleb, offers his daughter, Aksa, as a prize for the warrior who takes the city of Debir. So he captures the city and he is awarded with the daughter of Caleb. I know that today, a woman being given away as a prize for military victory would be rightly unacceptable. But in their context, in their context, we have to understand that Caleb is acting as a responsible father is supposed to do. He is finding a worthy husband for his daughter. And we learn that 
Othniel is a capable warrior. In the second story you heard, Othniel sets the basic pattern for the major judges that will follow in the rest of the book. Right? It's like, um, it's, if, you're, if you're a fan of uh, Korean drama, for example, you, you kind of have to see Stairway to Heaven. Right? It's, it's not the best one, but it kind of sets the pattern for all the, the Korean drama that's ever been made. Right? You've got blindness, you've got mixed births, you've got uh, one-dimensional characters that are super evil or super good, you've got um, sibling jealousy, you've got unbelievable coincidences, you've got cancer, you've got slow-mo recalls of the past events, you've got episodic cliffhangers. I mean, right, it's got every element and trope of every, you know, future K-drama. So it, it gives you this sort of template of what it's supposed to be. And so when you watch something, you can kind of compare it to say, oh, this is missing, or you know, this is different from this, this paradigm. Well, Othniel uh, sets this pattern for us. And there's, there are five elements that we're going to see and be able to kind of uh, think about the rest of the judges. So first, verse 7, the people sin. The stories always begin with sin. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Right? They did evil, they forgot. they forgot God, and they served idols. It's a threefold description of the abandonment of God as God. So, you know, sin, sin is not just like um, making a mistake or doing something wrong. Sin is fundamentally, it's, it's, it's idolatry. It's turning away from God toward something else. It's relinquishing God's exclusive claim on our lives. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and they served other gods. So that leads then to suffering. Sin leads to suffering. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sowed them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people served him eight years. Cushan Rishathayim means something like the dark of double wickedness. It sounds like a supervillain, right? He's the king of Mesopotamia, but actually it says he's the king of Aram of the two rivers, Aram Naharayim. In Hebrew, it's a rhyming tongue twister. Kushan Rishathayim Melech Alam Naharayim. The dark of double wickedness of the land of double rivers. For eight years, they served him. And this, this is really the typical result of sin. When, when we sin, we become slaves and we suffer. And we all know about this, right? Whether it's an addiction or maybe, maybe you have uh, anger in your heart or there's some, some secret sin that you're, you're, you're hiding. We suffer not because, you know, God zaps us with cosmic lightning or something like that, but it's the sort of the natural consequence of a life oriented away from God. Suffering is, it's, you know, you reap what you sow. And so that's what the people experience. Sin leads to suffering. Third, then the people cry out for help. It doesn't say why the people waited eight years before they cried out for help. You know, 
you, think, you would think that after a year of suffering, that would be enough to say, God, help us. But something happened in the eighth year. Maybe it just took that long before they hit bottom. For whatever reasons, that's when they did it. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say that the people repented or were sorry. There's no confession here. There's nothing going on where they're taking responsibility for their actions. There's no promises being made for future faithfulness. Nothing like that. All we're told is that they're simply shouting for help. That's it. It doesn't mean that repentance isn't necessary or unimportant. Only it's really highlighting God's graciousness and God's compassion uh, in this passage. When the people cry out, God hears and God responds. And this is where rescue begins. So sin leads to suffering, leads to supplication, and then God sends a savior. Verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel. The Lord raised up a deliverer. God sends a deliverer in response to the people's plea. Rescue comes from God. That's the point of this. Rescue comes from God is the one who has to raise up a deliverer. It does not come from our powers, our performances. We do not produce our Savior. Rescue is not earned. It is given by mercy. Acts 2.21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel 2.23, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what the people experienced. There's no need to spend eight years in bondage. There's no need to delay even one more day. God hears the cry of his people and God sends a deliverer. Someone filled with his spirit to lead the people to victory. Now I want you to, uh, this is something that will come up again. Othniel is called a deliverer and he judged Israel. I know that for most of us when we hear the word judge or even the book of Judges, we think largely in terms of, you know, um, I don't know, like, like Judge Judy or um, the judges on American Idol, or the voice, those talent shows where they're um, making a decision about the quality of something, or they make a decision about the rightness of a law, or something like that. But the way the word is used uh, is not in that primary sense. In the book of Judges, and the way this word is being used here, is someone who might have that role, but is primarily a military leader. So I know we don't, you know, I was thinking maybe Judge Dredd or something, but you know, a judge is not really kind of someone who's sort of sitting on the bench with a hammer. Uh, it's someone who is a deliverer, someone who rescues, someone who brings salvation. That, that's, that's the word judge. So it's, the emphasis is on deliverance, not so much on you know, um, uh, making a, a case of justice. All right, so sin... Suffering, supplication, savior, and then finally, rest. The result of his victory is that the land then had rest for 40 years. 40 years, uh, typically in the scriptures, represents one generation. So it's to say that the land had rest during all the days of Othniel's judging or his leadership. What struck me uh, this week, is that the land had rest 
Uh, and I always thought the word rest here was, was shalom, but it's not. It's a different word from the word shalom or peace. It's, it's rest. It's what I'm going to call pseudo-shalom. Maybe a ceasefire or a truce. Right? They had quietude, according to the poets. They did not have the fullness or the wholeness of the peace of shalom. They had rest. And then uh, that's the end of his story. And then he dies. Now, I want to make uh, two double reflections with you today. The first is this. The last verse you heard was, Then Athniel, the son of Kenaz, died. What you didn't hear is the very next verse, which reads, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the pattern. Sin, suffering, supplication, Savior, pseudo-shalom, and then the cycle repeats all over again. And we see this over, and, and it's this sort of, and it's not just going in circles. It's going in a circle, and it's spiraling down. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the judges. So it's the cycle, but it's a cycle that is continuing to spiral down until we get to the end of the book, where it's just completely, completely out of control. Um, you've heard the saying that those who don't know their history are likely to repeat it. And that's what we're going to see. They're stuck in this downward, sin-suffering, supplication, savior, pseudo-shalom spiral that leads to death. There's an old nursery rhyme. Uh, I don't know how many of you know this. It's called, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. Anybody know this? Oh, you do? Wow. It's it's, it's really an interesting uh, nursery rhyme. Um, It starts with, I know an old lady, she swallowed a fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. I mean, I know you sing this to your two-year-old. And then it goes on, each verse. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider. It wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. And so the rhyme continues. She then swallows a bird to catch the spider, to catch the fly. Then she swallows a cat to catch the bird. Then a dog to catch the cat. And then a goat to catch the dog. And this is my favorite part of the rhyme. I don't know if you know this. A minister (laughs) to catch the goat. I have no idea what. I know an old lady who swallowed a minister. Isn't that sinister? (laughs) Then guess what she swallows to catch the minister? Anyone? Do you know this? A rhinoceros. (laughs) And then finally, she swallows a horse to catch the rhino. And it ends with, she swallows a horse and she died, of course. (laughs) You're probably not going to want to sing that to your kids tonight, right? Why did she swallow that fly? I don't know why. All her troubles resulting in death could have been avoided if she didn't swallow that fly, right? If someone told her, don't swallow that fly, or if she had some friends who might have intervened before it spiraled all the way down to the bottom, if she admitted... I swallowed the flies. Somebody please help me. 
The theologian Cornelius uh, Plantinga Jr. said that sin is remarkably generative. Sin yields more and more sin. One sin leads to another. And so really the, the best remedy is to not get started. To not get started on the cycle. Someone said that the book of Judges is a theological argument using pattern history as illustration. And that that argument is largely what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes when God is not king. When people do what they think is right in their own eyes when God is not the basis for what people do when God is not the Lord, this is what's going to happen. That's the argument. And that describes not only the world of judges, but it describes our world today, our pluralistic, postmodern culture. And so I think this will speak to us. It's telling us, don't get trapped in this cycle. It's only going to get worse. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happen as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And again in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. These are lessons for us so that we might not desire evil and forget God and serve other idols and lose hope. That's what they're there for. Because I know how easy it is to forget God, to not think about God after you leave church today. It's hard to think about God when you're at work. And when you forget, it's easy to serve other gods. I don't mean that you're going to go to you know, join some other you know, religion or cult or something like that but that other things in your life take on a greater importance, take priority in your life, and that that becomes your focal point. Sir Thomas More said, the world does not need so much to be informed as to be reminded. We need to be reminded. To remember the Lord, our God. The Bible tells us that Israel served God all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and they had known the work that God did And then it says in Judges 2.10, eventually that entire generation died and was buried. Then another generation grew up that didn't know anything of God or the works he had done for Israel. And then we see them entering into this death spiral. Every generation has a responsibility for their own generation. That, That if we don't pass on the faith to our generation, to this generation, then the next generation is going to be doomed uh, into, this, into this kind of cycle. And, and I think that's what worship is. This is why we're called to remember the Sabbath. The rhythm of weekly Sunday worship, if nothing else, is a reminder to remember God. At least for a moment, we can try to center our lives around God. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So we gather and remind each other, don't swallow that fly. Don't get entangled in sin and in serving other gods. Keep your eyes on Jesus and walk straight on the narrow path. I think that's the most obvious lesson 
that this history can teach us. But there is a second part of this double lesson. Um, and, I, and I got this last night, I have to tell you. Uh, in fact, this morning when I got up, I told my wife, I had a dream about the sermon. That this is my life. Um, I've actually, I actually very rarely have these kinds of dreams. Uh, very rare. And um, I was telling my wife that I had this, just this incredible, well, I thought it was a really good insight about, about the passage. And then I was telling her, like, I was like, why couldn't God give me this insight, like, Tuesday? Why, you know, Sunday morning? Um, so now, you know, I got to get up and I got to, like, I had to rework the whole second half of the sermon, you know, you know uh, before coming to church. And my wife said to me, you know, like, what's wrong with you? God gives you an insight, and instead of being thankful, you're complaining, right? <laughs> See how easily we forget God? That's how easily we forget. Um, and, and so here's, here's, what, uh, here's, here's my dream. Um, in the first part of the story of Othniel, in chapter 1, uh, I mentioned that he received the daughter of Caleb, uh, Aksa, as a prize. In fact, her name means uh, a decorative anklet. So, I mean, it's, she's almost like, you know, a trophy, right? Um, it's not a popular name. She is initially treated as an object. Her fate is decided by her father. But she does not remain passive. She's not bound by convention and expectations. She becomes the subject through a series of actions which she initiates. This is very important. She moves, she questions, she dismounts, she inquires, she asks for springs of water in the Negev or in the desert from her father and so secures economic security for her family. She does all of this. And she has a name. She has a father who looks out for her interest and blesses her. She has a brave husband worthy of her. And I want you to remember this because as we progress through Judges, this is not going to be the case. The treatment of women, of daughters and wives, is just going to deteriorate. And the behavior of husbands and of fathers will become less honorable as signs of the collapse, the spiritual collapse of the Israelites. So we're, so we're going to see that. So she's, she sets a pattern for us, a standard against which we can measure the rest of the events. Now here's what I got in my dream. She asks for springs of water, in the plural, and she receives the upper and the lower springs. Two springs. In, in case you're wondering, in my dream, I saw the text... And the word, the two springs got bolded. That's, that was my dream, in case you're wondering. I know, it's, it's weird. Um, the Israelites, remember, they served Kushan Rishathayim, Melech Aram Naharayim, the king of two rivers. Right? These, these are desert people. Water is scarce, it's precious. So maybe they, they serve this guy, even though he's wicked and evil, because he's got two rivers. He's blessed. And maybe, because Aksa was able to secure water for Othniel and their family, 
He didn't need the water. He didn't have to be tempted by the wicked water that was available elsewhere. Now, I don't want to get too allegorical. You know, I don't like to do this with my interpretation. But can I suggest that Othniel was sufficiently satisfied with the waters that he had at home so that he was not tempted to go after foreign waters. You know, thirst is legitimate. It's a legitimate need. And it may be that people just did, they were just so desperate for water that they, they were willing to serve any king, anybody who could provide waters. And this guy's got two rivers. But Othniel did not. He was able to keep out of this downward spiral of sin because his wife, his helpmeet, asked for waters from her father who gave it to her as a gift. You hear that? She asked for a blessing from her father who gave her not one, but two springs of water as a gift. Don't we have a father who wants to give us good gifts? Didn't Jesus promise that if we drink from the water he gives, we will never thirst. We will not want any other water. Ask and you will receive. Find your satisfaction in the living and true water that Jesus gives. The second reflection I want to make with you is that, you know, Othniel is given to us, as I said, as the ideal judge, the pattern for all judges to follow. There's not a whole lot of personal details about him, uh, but there's nothing sort of negative said about him. He doesn't have the kinds of uh, glaring personal flaws that we're going to see in some of the other later judges. He comes from a good, faithful, well-known family. He marries well. He's brave. He's filled with the Spirit of God. I mean, he, he's an, he appears to be you know, he's an ideal Israelite. He's an ideal man. But did you notice that three times, the three times that his name appears, he's always called Othniel, the son of Kenaz. He's always referred to as the son of Kenaz. Who is Kenaz? And, and why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, in Genesis, Kenaz is associated with the lineage of Esau and Edom, not Isaac. According to Judges 1.16, the descendants of Kenaz, Moses' father-in-law, settled with the people of Judah. In other words, Kenaz and his descendants are Midianites. They're not Israelites. They're not native, pure-blood Jews. It appears that because you know Moses married the daughter of Jethro, a Kenite, a Midianite, it seems likely that others, other Midianites, intermarried with the Israelites uh, because you know Moses did it. And those people then became integrated into the tribe of Judah. Now, that's important for two reasons. One, it tells us that even though uh, Othniel was a Midianite, he's considered from the tribe of Judah. In fact, the book of Judges begins with these words. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, 
Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then toward the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 18, we find these parallel words. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Twice in the book of Judges, the people ask God, who will go first? Who's going to lead the fight? And both times God says, Judah. Judah shall go first. Judah, the tribe of Othniel, and later the tribe of David, King David. The Israelites fight the Canaanites in the beginning of the book, but at the end there's a civil war, and it's Judah, the house of David, fighting against Benjamin, the house of Saul. The book of Judges is framed as pro-David, pro-Judah, and anti-Saul, anti-Benjamin. That's one way of reading the book. If you're a skeptic, you can, you can say this is just you know, revisionist history. This is political polemic against Saul and Benjamin, written by David and his handlers. But I think, it's, I think that's not quite right. This is simply the theological acknowledgement that David is going to be God's chosen king. It is a prophetic word that it will be through David and the tribe of Judah that the Messiah, the Deliverer, will come. That's the promise. So maybe, maybe, that's, the pro, maybe that's the primary lesson of the book. We need a Savior that only God can send us, and that Savior, the promise of that Savior, is that he will come from the tribe of Judah. And so he has to come from this tribe to foreshadow this move, that the Deliverer who will save us from all wickedness, from all our enemies, from the double evil of sin and death, Jesus Christ, the Son of David of the tribe of Judah. So that's why he has to be associated with Judah. And secondly, the fact that he is part of the tribe of Judah tells me that what matters in faith is the spirit of God and not your genes. He's part of the second generation in the promised land. And he is an outsider who becomes a part of the people of God. His adoption into the tribe of Judah foreshadows our adoption into the family of God. The ideal judge is not a model because he's the best of the insiders, nor is he you know, a, a f- model in the false sense of a model minority. But he is a model because he's being grafted into the family of God by the grace of God. We are reminded here that our Savior, he too will be an outsider. He will not be pure Jewish blood. In Jesus' own lineage, he will have the bloodline of the Moabite through Ruth, just as Athniel did, as well as the blood of Rahab of Jericho, a Canaanite. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and in his own body, he carries the bloodlines of the world. And so Othniel foreshadows for us this new covenant that Jesus will extend to the Gentiles.
to us. The family of God is not related by blood or family lineage. That's not what determines who's in the family of God. It's forged by the blood of Christ. As Jesus said to those who were gathered under the cross, Behold your son, behold your mother. Blessed is not the one who is biologically related to Jesus, but as Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's what makes us family. And, and that's what this temporary rest is pointing to. Because despite all the heroic efforts of Athniel and the efforts of the other judges, there is no lasting peace. There is no wholeness. Shalom. Deliverance is always incomplete and impartial because the judge always dies. When the judge is alive and provides good leadership, there is relative peace. But once the judge dies, they're back to chaos, back to sin. So what they need and what we need is a deliverer who never dies, who can provide constant leadership. And that's what the people were waiting for. They were waiting for a deliverer who would bring lasting peace. He doesn't appear in the book of Judges, but he does come. The people will cry, and God will send a deliverer who never dies, and who will provide a leadership and a kingdom that will endure forever. And his name is Jesus. Matthew one twenty one, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save, he will deliver his people from their sins. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we begin uh, our study of judges in this season, uh, help us to, to understand your word for us. That in a time of chaos, it is still possible to be faithful. That it is possible to break the cycle of sin. And that a people filled with your spirit can make a difference. And that we have the hope that we no longer have to wait. For you have already sent us the everlasting deliverer. And now we wait for his coming again. In that hope, help us to learn the lessons that you would have us learn from our shared history. And to cling to your promises. That in you, that in you and in you only, is life and life eternal. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.